Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, investigating the lives of great aunts and uncles. First with Dan Richards in Climbing Days, and then Cal Flynn in Thicker Than Water. Before we start the show, I just wanted to let you know that Little Atoms will be taking part in the inaugural London Podcast Festival at King's Place in King's Cross on Saturday the 24th of September. I'll be talking to The Guardian's own Hadley Freeman about her fantastic book, Life Moves Pretty Fast, which is about the lessons she learnt from watching 80s movies. So if you think we don't talk about Dirty Dancing and Ghostbusters enough on Little Atoms, this is the event you've been waiting for. Go to www.kingsplace.co.uk and search for Little Atoms there for tickets, and get in quick, this one's sure to sell out. Dan Richard studied at UEA and Norwich Art School. He's the co-author of Holloway with Robert McFarlane and Stanley Donwood, and the Beechwood Airship Interviews, a book about the creative process and the importance of art for art's sake, which we talked about last year on Little Atoms. His latest book is Climbing Days, which we're going to talk about today. Dan, welcome back. Hello. Climbing Days, tell us roughly what it's about. I had an extraordinary great-great-aunt and uncle uh, named Dorothy Pilly. Uh, that was my aunt, and I.A. Richards was my great-great-uncle. Um, they were mysterious figures within the family. It wasn't until I discovered Dorothy's memoir, climbing memoir from 1935, unread on a shelf, that I really began to delve into her life and I discovered what an extraordinary life she had. And I thought, well, it would be interesting to get to know this amazing woman who I'm related to. And um, I knew a bit about IAR because I'd studied um, his practical criticism and things at university but I knew next to nothing about Dorothea so um, I set out to use her memoir which is also called Climbing Days my book's named after hers as a kind of practical guide and I set off into the mountains and into various archives and to interview and meet various people who knew them well and try and form a picture of these two extraordinary people. And yeah it's it could be described as a biography, but it's much more than that as well. So why did you decide that a straight biography was not what you wanted to do? Because Dorothy was such a vital person. I mean, she was full of verbs. She was um, a climber. She was a writer. She was a journalist. She was incredibly fiery and determined to have her own way. You know, she was not to be quelled in her quest to do what she wanted to do. I felt I couldn't 
really write about her or engage with her vicariously. I had to go into these kindred spaces, which um, were the mountains, and not just UK mountains, but mountains in France, mountains in Switzerland, mountains in Spain. She climbed all over the world at a time when very few people travelled internationally and certainly climbed internationally. So, you know, I wanted to visit originally... China, where she put up some first ascents in the 30s with Ivor, and um, America and Canada. I wasn't able to get to those places for various reasons, but you know, I thought I'm going to have to go out and engage with these people on their terms, and their their terms were, you know, these quite vertiginous, high altitudinous places. So I thought, well, I'm going to go there. And it turns out, I mean, quite early on in the book, you mentioned that I particularly was against the idea of writing about yourself or writing about yes. biography or autobiography. Well, in a similar way to Stephen Dedalus, you know, history was a bad dream from which he was trying to awake. He felt, um, you know, he started to study history and then he, he changed course because he basically thought it shouldn't have happened and it was a terrible waste and, you know, fairly stupid. In the similar way, he very much held with the idea that you should be judged by your doings, not by your the way you saw yourself. Writing your own life story was in a way a cop-out for him because actually everyone's writing their own life story in deeds, again, verbs, the whole time. So no, he wasn't a huge fan of either history or biography, although interestingly he was a huge fan of the Hornblower novels. Uh, So, you know, um, there were quite a lot of contradictions within the pair of them. But I thought actually, if I'm going to write about somebody who did not like straight biography, I should approach it in an odd way, in a way to meet him halfway. Now, you've already mentioned that you knew very little about Dorothy or Dorothea, as they're called by different elements of the family. But there must have been something. What did you have to start on? Small things, small details. There were the stories within the family of um, these visits that she and Ivor would make. Um, they were always very old people to my dad. Um, they were born... Well, they were both born in the 19th century. And by the time my dad was, you know, 10 or something in the 60s, they were, you know, they were in their 60s. They were old people. The best of their climbing lives were behind them. So when these two fairly, you know, to my dad's young eyes, doddery people turned up with their sticks and their hats and their big coats, you know, always looking like they were about to go off elsewhere on these fairly royal visits, you know, because they were used to fuss wherever they went. Ivor's career had really taken off and he was fated on both sides of the Atlantic and, you know, taught in China and Dorothea they were used to a bit of a reception and he remembers these quite intimidating people turning up often with exciting dangerous gifts uh, the sort of gifts that people who don't have children give other people's children and he remembered he and his brothers as they got older beginning to resent the fact that these people would turn up and in some way expect this welcome or Actually, that's not quite right, because I don't think there was a huge expectation that it just kind of was in the water, so people Mm -hmm. acted in a certain way. And my dad and his brothers at one point played um, the Who very loudly at them in order to kind of uh, elicit some sort of emotional response, because they felt these two people were fairly dry, uh, and they had no idea about their extraordinary lives and, you know, their doings. So there were stories like that of, of, of them turning up and my dad's reactions to them. There were stories of Dorothea taking umbrage with the the very dry toast that my grandmother used to make and throwing it out of windows. There were stories of climbing. And it wasn't until I began writing the book that I discovered how deep my dad's need to communicate with these people was and the quite torturous ways that he tried to communicate with them often in their absence and um you know i found that i found that 
which maybe we'll talk about in a bit, incredibly moving and incredibly sad that he missed these people in life several times, had so many opportunities, on paper at least, to make contact with them because my father was also a climber and was inspired by them once he discovered you know, what they'd done but was not able, for one reason or another, to actually communicate that. Now, very early on, you speak to somebody, a friend of theirs in the later years at Cambridge. So what did you find from him? Well, that Dorothy was as intimidating uh, to her friends as she was to um, the family and everything like that. I mean, he, he used the phrase, there were, he felt there were furies living at the bottom of his garden because he lived um, above the Peach Library at uh, Magdalen College, Cambridge. And uh, certainly after Ivor died, because of the amount of money that um, he and Dorothy had left the college, they pretty much left Dorothy alone in Wentworth House, which was a house that they had the tenancy of on the site. And, um, you know, she was a formidable old lady. She lived into her 90s and she was in her 80s by this point. And she was very demanding. And Dr Richard Luckett was, as well as being the custodian of Ivor's estate, you know, a good friend and eventually became something of a confidant and fixer for Dorothy. And so, as a result, he was quite put upon in various peculiar ways. And um, as well as talking about the fairly humorous elements of that, he was at pains to point out what a fantastic writer she was, how indomitable in spirit she was, as well as being a sort of feisty lady, you know. And also, you know, how the relationship between she and Ivor, how extraordinary it was and how um, absolutely kindred they were you know he described them as being unlike any other married couple he'd ever known because of their the strength of their bond and the fact that they were really incredibly devoted friends almost more than anything else and they traveled together and they'd you know accompanied each other all over the world and achieved these amazing things and i think you know that I, I was really moved by that and i think that was what came out of it most now this book is it's in the main about Dorothy because Ivor is already a, a very well-known and celebrated figure. So for most of the interview, we're going to be talking about Dorothy and yourself and your investigation of her. But give us a, a sort of capsule description of, of Ivor again. Who was he? What did he do? Ivor, who goes by several names, I.A. Richards or I.A.R., is mainly known for having written a book called Practical Criticism, which essentially strips a piece of writing of... It's, you know, it's biography. You take away the date it was written, you take away the author's name, you take away anything that would give an indication as to when, where, why, who, and then you present this piece of paper to somebody and you say, what is actually written here? Tell me about this poem. So it's basically close reading. And that had a huge influence um, and continues to exert a huge influence on the way that English criticism, um, English literature is taught. And it was actually an incredibly anarchic anti-establishment thing to do in the fact that he did this at Magdalen College Cambridge in the 1920s and then published the results of these these tests he would give people several extracts from poetry and he would ask for responses and that vague term is just a massive ha-ha wall for these incredibly intelligent very sort of well-read people to make terrible fools of themselves and tell you that John Donne didn't know what he was doing but Woodbine Willie was a genius and then he published you know the results and there was a massive sort of sea change in the way that um, literature was taught as a result and then he co-wrote or rather had a huge influence on um, uh, one of his pupils called uh, William Empson who wrote the famous book Seven Types of Ambiguity which is really the second wave of that and then further on into the 20th century you have a lot of people the new critics reacting against what I ever thought so you have people like F.R. Leavis um, coming in 
and rubbishing to some degree what Ivor was trying to do, but at the same time, they couldn't have existed without him, and many of them were his pupils. So as a result of that, he is very well known for his toolkit with which you can unpack and get the most amazing insight into the written word. And it works both ways. You can both make a fool of yourself and you can make some amazing discoveries that way. And really it places the onus back on the reader to discover as opposed to taking as read um, that what you have in your hands because of a name on it, because of a date, is good. Because he was saying, you know, you shouldn't take that someone else's word. You should absolutely be given credit to decide these things for yourself. He was also, he did a number of other things. He was a great friend of T.S. Eliot's and helped to some degree, proof and edit things like Ash Wednesday. It's a bit like Peter Sellers in being there. He was there a lot throughout history. He and Dorothea, at the launch of the book last week or the week before, Dr Charles Clark was kind enough to come along and talk to me, and he was on Everest with Pete Baldwin and Joe Tasker in the 60s, 70s when they died, and he described Dorothy and Ivor as climbing aristocracy. And I think as well as what they did outside of the mountains, inside the mountains and within the climbing community, they were really revered because being so long-lived, they bridged generations because they took an interest in climbing throughout their lives. They were seen as these great figures and great knowledgeable people who were consulted right the way through. Ivor was at Cambridge University with George Mallory. He knew Edmund Hillary. They were both friends of people like Joe Tasker, Pete Baldwin and uh, Chris Bonington. They went right the way through. And the second edition of Dorothy's Memoir Climbing Days came out in 1965, so 30 years after the first. And she wrote a new introduction. And you can just tell from that introduction how au fait she is with the climbers and the climbing and the new techniques of the day. And she really took an interest, as did Ivor. Ivor there, you know, one of the great figures of the 20th century, some incredible achievements. Mm. But I want to talk about the photographs in the book of him climbing on the roofs. Yes, absolutely. One of the reasons he was such a great figure, I think, is because he was absented from the First World War. Um, he had TB. One of the reasons that he climbed was because he spent a long time recovering in alpine conditions, which were considered good for one's lungs if one had had tuberculosis. And during that time, as well as recovering in the mountains, he read... And so he was at Magdalen College, Cambridge, during the First World War. His two brothers fought and both won MCs. I say only one of them did in the book, but I've since found that the other won the MC with a bar. And one was a surgeon on the Somme, the other was in the Royal Engineers. They went right the way through. Ivor, meanwhile, was fairly free and easy in Cambridge, although he did volunteer at various things as one could do on the home front. But... Um, during the summer of 1915, when Cambridge was blacked out in expectation of Zeppelin raids and things, he was pursuing quite a enthusiastic career as a builderer in terms of climbing on the roofs of the colleges, um, not just his own, but other ones. And in the archive, which is held at Magdalen College, I discovered a small album of photographs which were taken of the recovery of an imp, a kind of beanbag imp that was strung up on the weather vane at Magdalen College one night in 1915. It shows the recovery of that. A.C. Benson, the housemaster, discovered this, uh, you know, 
thing, this sprite um, strung up on the weather vane, and the next day, or in the days after, he basically worked out, it was fairly easy, who had done it, which of the um, students had done it. And then, being 1915 and a different time, he then sent them back up in daylight to get it down, and you have these amazing pictures, these amazing, flabbergastingly scary pictures of um, Ivor as a young man up on what's basically a church spire, 50 metres up or something, getting down this rag doll with a couple of others. And it just looks perilous beyond belief. And it was one of my favourite things that I discovered because, as you say, he was a, a great mind of the 20th century. But there's, in some way, he has become known as this great mind and it's as if his physical body ceased to exist sometime in the 19, early 1920s. But here he was, and it, it could have ended so differently. He could have very easily fallen off this thing. Um, the rope doesn't look like it's going to do particularly any good unless the other person jumped over <laughs> the other side of the, the roof to, you know, balance them out. And he was an incredible athlete, you know, he w and he was apparently fearless. And here he is going up and retrieving this doll and in an archive chock full of things to do with the mind this is a very sort of it gives me a very bodily reaction to look at these pictures you know he wasn't just cerebral is what i'm trying to say and um he's had very cerebral biographies written about him which are you know breeze block thick and uh, you know make one feel incredibly block-headed when you get into them you just think i've no idea what's going on here apart from the fact that he's very clever and i feel very stupid and here he is you know doing these you know incredible physical feats and dorothy too in her time i found similar evidence of her buildering and sort of you know going beyond the realms of what i would consider common sense endeavor how does Dorothea get into it then where does this love of climbing come from because one would have thought in the early days of climbing mountain climbing or, or rock climbing as a pastime women would not have been particularly welcome no they weren't but to be fair they weren't welcome for most of Dorothy's life this was a time when women were basically controlled by the patriarchy uh, in terms of what they did in, how, in terms of how they dressed in terms of you know how they were taught to think and from an early age, she was absolutely down for a life of housewifery, very top-end housewifery, but there were no expectations for her. Her idea she might become a gardener going to horticulture was roundly poo-pooed, um, you know, when she left school. And she was pretty much hung out to um, wait for a nice husband. And then that would be her life sorted out. And she rebelled massively, both at school and afterwards, um, why shouldn't she go to public lectures? What was the worst thing that would happen? Why wouldn't she write professionally, maybe under a pseudonym? But why shouldn't she have a career that she actually wanted? I mean, a career. And um, in the, I'd say, yes, during the First World War, she took a holiday, a trip to Snowdonia. And in Snowdonia, she discovered the freedom of being let loose away from the city, away from her father's expectations, away from the patriarchy, and um, was determined after that short trip to um, the mountains of North Wales never to go back to the life she had before and pretty much set herself the task of becoming a climber as a result, wished to be kindred and within the mountains as much as possible. And as well as discovering herself in the mountains, she discovered this group, amazing group of people, fellow climbers, and she describes this experience as the beginning of the mountain madness and later describes it again as being ardently alive and I think in a world where ardour was 
pretty much forbidden unless it was projected the way your father wished you to ard. It was an amazing thing. And it's it's very wonderful to read those extracts in her memoir because, you know, she really blossoms in the mountains. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Dan Richards about his latest book, which is Climbing Days. And Dan, before we broke there, we left Dorothea in Snowdonia. Yeah. And out of those early trips comes... She's instrumental in starting a club, the Pinnacle Club, yeah. um, which is a climbing club exclusively for women. Yes. Which still exists. It still exists. They've just had um, a brilliant and apparently very successful AGM with women coming from all over the world to attend. And they had speakers from all over Europe and beyond. It's still going. The women climbing now are just as formidable and brilliant and able as Dorothy was. This was the first climbing club set up by women for women at a time when mountaineering was seen not only predominantly as a male pursuit, but as, you know, fundamentally a male pursuit. Helen Moore has just written a wonderful collection of poems called No Map Could Show Them, and one of the poems uh, details how many male climbers felt that a route ceased to exist once it had been climbed by a rope of women. You know, a rope of women with no men present could destroy a climbing guide within weeks by um, having the temerity to go up unassisted and blitz a load of roots, after which no self-respecting man would ever admit to having to put those roots up or reclimbing them. They were taking a rubber to the um, this sketch map of what had been achieved in the mountains. And that was the world at the time that Dorothy and a number of other people, Pat Kelly, um, you know, Emily Bray, set up the Pinnacle Club. And that was 1921. And they had a lot of help from the Felon Rock and Enlightened Male Clubs. But this was the first club that was founded with the principle of by women for women. Before then, you had very begrudgingly the Alpine Club setting up the Ladies Alpine Club. Because previous to that, the Alpine Club had, of course, been, you know, there was no need to say it aloud, the male Alpine Club. You had the Felon Rock, which I think was one of the first to admit women. But the Pinnacle Club was the first to make it absolutely clear that not only were women worth being admitted to a club but they deserved a club of their own they could achieve and they could often they could go further than the men had although you know the idea was completely you know bewildering to a great deal of climbers of the time now despite the pinnacle club being exclusively for women they do kindly allow you to uh yes. to go along with them on your first real excursion i mean you don't actually get to do any climbing at this point no your first attempt yes first attempt um in ogwen which is um above uh Bangor in north wales in um you know the uh, this bowl of rocks with a lake in the middle and you have a, a thing there called um a rock face there called the idwell slabs uh, the slopes of cheese they're known as and this big wedge this big fist driving down towards towards the lake 
And we got there in a monsoon and there was absolutely no chance of us climbing it. And it's quite a funny episode in as much as it's the first of several times during the book that I get completely out of my depth with people who actually knew what they were doing. Because it's worth saying, before I started the book, I had no real experience of climbing. I'd done some climbing in scouts, I'd done some abseiling, but I really went in at the deep end, um, which is fairly chastening at the time, but very good if you're writing a book. You need to put yourself up a tree and, you know, have someone throw rocks at you because that's what the reader wants. And then you bring yourself down again. And, you know, that's essentially the arc of a decent book, I think. And I put myself up, not just trees, but um, fairly high mountains and then had rocks thrown and fall on me. So, um, you know, in many ways it was absolutely uh, vital this, this happened, but it was very chastening at the time. Well, as a result of that first trip, you end up signing up for a um, like a, a winter mountaineering course. Yes. Up in the Cairngorms, which sounds just appalling. Tell me about that trip. Um, it was actually a lot of fun. The course in question was uh, set up in um, honour and memory of Jonathan Conville, um, who died on the, I think, north face of the Matterhorn in the 70s. And his family, in light of his death, rather than discouraging people from going and doing that sort of thing, set up a series of courses to train young people in mountain safety both in um, winter alpine conditions and more generally Um, and these are subsidized courses they're wonderful courses run by incredibly knowledgeable people and um, I went along with you know there were two instructors and they're both very very warm knowledgeable people and they took us through our paces basically there was me who was very much a rookie I mean you had some other people there who were training to be guides or instructors of some form or another and some people could ski there some people couldn't some people had used crampons and ice axes before others hadn't and we were trained how to be safe in the mountains we were trained how to use an axe properly to arrest ourselves if we were falling down you know a snow slope how to belay someone safely how to dig a snow cave they were teaching us how to survive if things got a bit you know a bit nasty alpine avalanche kind of techniques and it's worth saying these things that don't just happen abroad the Cairngorms is a very, very serious range of mountains. Snowdonia is a very, very serious range of mountains. And just the same as you can drown in a bucket as well as the sea, you can, you know, get into severe trouble in the apparently small and apparently contained landscape that we have on this island. So there's the great story of um, British climbers going over to Switzerland and being asked what they think of these big mountains and saying with an entirely straight face, because they're quite serious, well, it's really good training for the Cairngorms. Because the Cairngorms are, are, in Nan Shepherd's words, a kind of world within themselves. And you disappear into this range of mountains and you are at their mercy unless you know what you're doing. And it was very important to be safe because there's no point getting into trouble for its own sake because you might not get out of it. And if I was going to follow in Dorothy and Ivor's footsteps, you know, two fiendishly not just competent but great climbers, I knew that I needed to do it properly. And so um, the Cairngorm course was instrumental in giving me the skills to kind of follow their course. I want to talk in a moment about some of their, I guess, mountaineering achievements. But mm. before we talk about that, let's get out of the snow and, and go over to Spain for a bit. You take a little uh, trip over to Barcelona to talk to Dorothea's nephew, yes. Anthony. Anthony. And you also get some memories from his brother, Chris, as well. Yeah. But let's talk about some of their memories of their art. Well, in a way, very similar to my father 
and his brother's memories. They still they had royal visits as well. Their dad was Dorothy's brother. And so um, they lived in Edinburgh, they grew up in Edinburgh, and um, Dorothy and Ivor would fly over to Prestwick at a time when very few people flew in from America, and this was kind of post-war. Anthony and Chris are slightly older than my dad. They're in their, I'd say, late 60s, maybe, early 70s. And um, one of the things about Anthony is he looks like Dorothea, and I think he has the same level of kind of, I don't know... He's a very charismatic person. I think Dorothy was very charismatic, all the stories that I've read. Charismatic, powerful in what she wanted, you know, really exerted uh, an influence and also a, a kind of authority, and yet was incredibly twinkly, incredibly fun, and in her way, incredibly open and warm once you got past this fairly sort of frosty exterior. And half the time, I don't think that was meant. And that was the thing that really sort of scuppered my dad with her, um, you know, was this kind of apparent frost, uh, which I think would have absolutely burnt off in an instant had she known that he was, you know, going out and climbing as well. But Anthony lives in Barcelona, where he's a painter. And um, he is an extraordinary chap. And prior to beginning the research for the book, I had no idea that I had second cousins, which they are to me, and um, I went over and I stayed with him and we went up Montserrat. And from the top of Montserrat, you can see the uh, the Pyrenees, which have several entries in The Climbing Days, uh, Dorothy's memoir. And um, it was an amazing experience to go there and to see the Pyrenees, but it was also a great experience to bond and catch up with Anthony. You know, this extraordinary relative I had no previous knowledge of until I began the book. And to hear his stories about Dorothy, both as a young chap himself, you know, as a, as a teenager, his experience of a younger Dorothy. And then in the book, there's the most extraordinary account of a trip he took with Dorothy around New Year, I think 1985, to Glenbrittle. And he wrote a letter, an account of this trip for somebody who was writing an obituary um, once Dorothy had died. And um, I reproduce that in the book because it's the most lovely, I don't know, just it's really alive, the account of it. We haven't really mentioned very much Dorothea's climbing days then, so I said I wanted to talk about some of their mountaineering achievements. Let's do it through her memoir. Tell us something of the book. Well, in the early days of her climbing, she put up a number of routes with Ivor in North Wales. They put up a one called Holly Tree Wall, which is above a climb called Hope, uh, which was kind of instrumental in their kind of in climbing, there's a phrase called nursery slopes, and those are the slopes that you, you learn your craft on, and Hope was very much their nursery slope, as well as being a climb which can be very easy if you take one approach or quite difficult if you, you know, set yourself the challenge of going up in a rather in an unusual way. So, um, and again, this is in, in Ogwen. This is uh, the Idwal Slabs. And then later, she put up some interesting and quite novel routes in Scotland um, and Skye, and then in the Pyrenees as well, she was over there climbing with Ivor. But it's Switzerland that really is the nub and the focus of their climbing lives from quite an early stage. Um, Dorothy first saw the Dent Blanche, which is you know the apex of her memoir in 1921. And um, from that moment on, for the next seven years, she and Ivor planned how they were going to you know climb that mountain, specifically the North Arete, the North Ridge, this unclimbed great problem of the Alps, and they set themselves the challenge of doing this. And they were helped and aided in that by um, 
an amazing Swiss guide uh, who became a firm friend throughout the rest of their lives called Joseph Georges. And his brother, Antoine, was also a really sort of good friend of theirs. And for the next seven years after 1921, first time Dorothy saw the mountain, they plotted as to how they would how they would make this climb, which was and remains a great, difficult, challenging, vertiginous beast of a climb. They climbed it in 1928 and it was not climbed again for 15 years. Now, you mentioned that your father regretted the fact that he'd never really been able to connect with her. But he did, he climbed the, that he, mountain, he climbed in, the mountain in, 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 yes. a way, in, a, in an attempt to, I guess, although she never knew that. Um, I don't know if she knew or not. It's possible that um, she might have been told by somebody in the area because she had really good links in um, the canton of Valais in Switzerland. He climbed in 1981 a very severe route, really. Not as severe as the one she put up with Ivor, but really a very challenging comet tail of rock that goes up to one side called the Fapekla Ridge. And he did this with a chap called Pete Healy um, in 1981. Um, I've tried to track down Pete Healy. It's proved completely impossible to the extent where I began to doubt whether Pete Healy ever existed because my dad's memory is notoriously um, you know, untrustworthy at times. But um, they put up this... Well, they did this climb in 1981 and Dorothy didn't die until 1985. And the tragedy of it is that Tim, my dad, never told her. And that was one of the most... The saddest things I discovered writing this book was my dad's attempts to, to some degree, have a connection with Dorothy and these pilgrimages he made. And it wasn't just there. He went to other places. And the thing about a climb is that you can climb absolutely in someone's footsteps. Climbing Days, Dorothy's book, has an account of going up the Fapekla Ridge there's pretty much only one way you can do it properly, and that's exactly how my dad did it. When I climbed on the slopes in North Wales that they had, you know, these routes that they had founded, I was following plans that they originally would have written and then have then been reproduced in books since. When you put up a route in climbing, you detail the number of pitches that you do. You took a pitch is about the length of an average piece of rope, probably about 30 metres. So you'll, um, you know, you'll climb that and then you'll stop, you'll regroup, and then you you know, climb the next part of a of a route. And that's how these things are detailed and described. And uh, the diagrams in books all come from these very simple, you know, a pitch is 30 metres, the rock face, you'll have a photograph and you'll have lines on that and people know what that means. So you can follow absolutely in someone's footsteps and think as they thought and solve the same problems. And Tim did this in the UK and in Switzerland in Dorothy and Ivor's footsteps. And then the final, and that was and th- and that was really tough to do, but then the final bit that you would have thought was the easiest thing, which is to tell them, he never did. And I just think it's tragic, genuinely tragic, that that wasn't the case. And in a way, the book is a gift to my dad, because we go back and we climb the Dent Blanche. We don't go up the Fepecla Ridge. We certainly don't go up the North Face, which is, you know, uh, terrifying. We go up the main ridge, the normal route it's called, which is tough enough, you know, and um, we went up the first time and we didn't succeed. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, there's a, there's a couple of attempts. This book concludes with a couple of attempts at the Dent Blanche and... Um, yeah, I didn't know how much you wanted to say about that. But your first attempt is with your father. Let's, yes. It doesn't go well. No, we um, basically get benighted, uh, stuck on the side of it overnight. And we have a very sort of uh, 
dark night of the soul and everything that can go wrong pretty much does go wrong on that trip um, and it's chastening in a number of ways but then once we um, are down off the mountain the most extraordinary things happen when we are discovered um, our identity is discovered by the local community because we had no idea of the standing still in this area of Ivor and Dorothy you know they are absolutely revered in that area um, of Switzerland and we got down off this incredibly ridiculously ignoble um, attempt that we made and we're feeling absolutely rock bottom exhausted we've been awake for 36 40 hours by this stage uh, we were exhausted we were completely sort of uh, broken by the attempt and um, you know really at a low ebb and then the response from the local people was extraordinary and that sort of welcome i think is incredibly rare i've never experienced anything like it and it will stay with me forever you do make another attempt. Yes. Uh, I go, I take a different route, quite literally. Uh, I hire a Swiss guide. I do what the Swiss would do. I do what most people in Europe would do, um, as opposed to the, the English approach, which is to, you know, go and have a go. I go there and I hire a Swiss guide um, who is um, a friend of Joseph Georges' great nephew, André Georges. Um, who himself is a most extraordinary climber, but was unable to accompany me up the mountain because he his ankle was in plaster. Because in his words, I broke it for the fifth time when I was in the Himalaya, and then I had to walk on it, broken for 12 days, to get out of the Himalaya. And after listening to that, I thought it's probably best I don't go up the mountain with you because, you know, we're clearly very different people with very different expectations of what's acceptable up a mountain. So his friend Jean Nobovier guides me. And, um, you know, it's a very different experience. Um, it's worth saying, you know, it is a success on many levels and on many levels it's just as chastening and painful as uh, the previous attempt. Although the Stockholm Syndrome that developed uh, post-climb still remains with me and I won't hear a word said against John Elbovier. I think he's an absolutely wonderful man. <laughs> um, just one final question to finish off then. So having written the book, but I guess more specifically having done the climbing do you now understand what they saw in it there's something that's referred to in the book this really weird abstract term called beyond and um the more i learned about climbing particularly himalayan and alpine climbing the dangers involved seem to outweigh anything that a normal person could possibly get from these you know attempting these feats Ivor says at one point, the view from the top of a mountain is rarely that much better than the view from slightly further down the mountain and you haven't put yourself through death-defying feats to, to get there. And so the question of why people climb mountains, it looms as the book gets on, it builds like a storm cloud. And in the end, I have a chat with Robert McFarlane and he says his book, Mountains of the Mind, is 300 pages that basically builds to the same question. And he ends up having to use the this kind of, you know, this temple of, you know, Mallory's famous phrase, because it's there, which is not the right answer, but it's as good as a lot of people have got. And in many ways, it's an incredibly cheap and, um, you know, unfortunate negation of the question because it's there doesn't really tell you anything you know many things are there but people don't go out to conquer them in quite the same death wish fashion that people do however having climbed the Don Blanche I did get a sense being at the top of it of a huge sense of beauty and release and 
I don't know, knowledge of something, but I couldn't tell you what. And I can see why people do it. And I can see why people want to test themselves. Um, and I can see why the feeling that you would get would become addictive. And I also realised very early on what a mesmerically severe, savage, but essentially beautiful place the mountains are, wherever they be, be they the Cairngorms, be they Snowdonia, be they Switzerland, be they the Pyrenees, there is a moment of absolute transcendence in a lot of these places. And if you're there and you experience it, I can see why people want to return to that time and again. And also a sense of peace and quietness if you are alone and climbing mountains at the level, in every sense, that Dorothy and Ivor did, I think really gave them a sense of who they were and really formed them as people. So I can understand that. But in terms of being a climber, I don't think I'll ever be a climber as they were climbers. And in the sense of, you know, why people climb mountains, I think there are many answers, but everyone will have their own. I think Dorothea and Iva climb mountains because of a deep love for the mountains themselves and each other. And I think they were never more alive and vital and in many ways in love than when they were in the mountains. So it was a great privilege to try and go and meet them there. I've been talking to Dan Richards about his book, Climbing Days. Dan, thank you very much for coming in and sharing it with us. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
I'm Ben Goldacre, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Cal Flynn is a freelance journalist from the Highlands of Scotland. She has been a reporter for the Sunday Times and the Daily Telegraph, and a contributing editor at The Week magazine. She has been published in The New Statesman, The Observer, The Independent, Telegraph magazine and FT Weekend, and won the 2013 Brand Independent on Sunday Travel Writing Prize. Her first book, which we're going to talk about today, is Thicker Than Water, History, Secrets and Guilt, a memoir. Cal, welcome to Little Atoms. Hello, thanks for having me on. So this book is, I mean, it investigates your great, great, great uncle, Angus Macmillan, who, well, we'll say first of all that he left the Highlands and became a famous and honoured pioneer of Australia. So tell us how you first discovered him and that you were related. Well, um, I first came across the sort of idea of Angus during a trip to Skye with my mother. That's where she's from and and where her side of the family is from originally. And uh, in Skye, we dropped into a diaspora exhibition. Now, the diaspora from Skye and indeed the rest of the Highlands and Islands is quite enormous, mainly due to a period in the 17th and 18th century, right into the 19th century, when poor people were being pushed off the lands at a period called the Highland Clearances. So there are a lot of sort of notable Scots have gone off around the world and Macmillan was picked out as one of the most interesting cases of a skyman who'd gone overseas and he had become an explorer as you say in an area called Gippsland which is near Melbourne and uh, he, today he is memorialised in cairns and plaques and you know there's a campus named after him and I, I found a map that uh, was of the area that he discovered not long after he discovered it um, with terribly romantic names you know Shoal Lagoon and Mount Disappointment and all sorts of exciting things it was like a, a treasure island map mm-hmm. of some kind and so I, I became very sort of fixated upon this glamorous swashbuckling figure in my own family tree and kind of hoped that perhaps there might be similarities ran in the family or something that I could sort of latch into. So finding him as, as I say, like this romantic figure. And uh, I, I was very excited about it. So when did you first discover that there was something a little bit darker in the story? Well, I uh, started Googling around, really, just to find out a bit more about him and uh, spoke about it with my mum. And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, your grandfather used to talk about him. He was very, mm-hmm. you know, proud of, of this heritage. So I did a bit of Googling and um, perhaps Googled a bit too much and, and stumbled upon some papers that revealed that actually, in recent times, he's been finger-pointed as being one of the ringleaders of a number of massacres of Aboriginal people in the area, Gippsland, that he pioneered. And uh, over the sort of 70s and 80s, um, some very shocking statistics and, and, and facts were released, or rather were uncovered, that showed the scale of uh, violence, black and white and white and black violence on, on the Aboriginal frontier in Victoria. And uh, the Ghanai people, who are the group indigenous to Gippsland, uh, were treated very badly indeed. Um, it's thought anywhere between sort of 1800 and 1600 may have been killed at, at the hands of white settlers. I want to talk about Angus for the first part of the show and then we'll, we'll break and then we'll talk about your own journey over to Australia to look for him. But let's, let's go back to him in Scotland. So who was he in Scotland? Well, he was uh, one of uh, a huge family of what was then sort of roughly the middle class. He was the son of a taxman, which uh, is not the same as today's taxmen, but the step below a, a clan chief, a sort of administrator. Mm-hmm. And so they were, as I say, middle class 
But it was such a time of upheaval in Scotland that even these people were not secure and they were sort of moving around the islands a lot uh, and with such a large family of at least 14 or 15 children, perhaps more because the records are very partial. It was very difficult, I think, for their family to try and envisage where the young men in their family were going to end up. And a lot of that generation went abroad. There were... At least four of the Macmillans ended up in Australia, some went to South America, and, you know, you see that in, in a lot of the Sky families. And you, you describe the voyage that he takes to Australia in this, in this sailing ship, which is quite an eventful journey in itself, isn't it? Tell us about that. That's right. It took uh, almost nine months, I think, uh, leaving from Greenock in Scotland and going to what uh, Macmillan then called New Holland or uh, Sydney in modern-day Australia. So they set off, uh, went round the Horn of Africa, across the Indian Ocean, and arrived in Australia much later. But during this trip, contagious disease broke out among the people travelling in the steerage deck, so below where Macmillan was. Uh, Very dangerous disease that that killed many of them and, and spread throughout, so that actually they were stuck in quarantine when they got to Sydney for several weeks after they arrived so it was it was a, an epic voyage ones that we can't really sort of imagine today you know I flew to Australia in 26 hours and I thought that that took a long time you know I was extremely unhappy by the time I got on the other end so I don't know if you can imagine sort of getting on nine months ten months later having been um locked up with all these people that you didn't know before you got on and um, all the sort of small dramas that's gone on board. He fell out with a lot of people because he was very religious then and through the rest of his life. He fell out with the captain for serving meat on Sundays and uh, for all sorts of things. He really made himself a bit of a nuisance at some stage. But I I find him quite appealing because I read his diaries and um, was surprised, given that I knew what would happen by the Mm -hmm. end of his life. Um, I was very surprised to find him actually kind of an appealing, funny character. So... Considering we've described him as he's a hard-working, pious, Presbyterian man, he's going to this, the other side of the world, to a colony that's really only just got started. This is barely a, a generation away from the only people that were going there were convicts. Mm-hmm. What does he find when he lands? Well, he lands and finds... Yeah, it's quite, it's quite a wild place. As, I, as you said, uh, there were a lot of convicts still being transported there. And it was during the transition phase from in between it being a, a convict colony and it being somewhere where free men chose to go. And Macmillan was in not the first wave, but uh, probably the biggest wave of free men who were actually paying to go mm-hmm. out there. And when they got there, there were so many people now looking for land, either emancipists, so that's freed convicts, or men like Macmillan, who actually just came out free, desperate to sort of make a name for themselves, find some land, um, just find the fortunes that they could not find in their own home countries, whether that be Scotland or Ireland or, or many other places in Europe. And so there were just dozens and hundreds of thousands of people all looking for um, a piece of land to call their own. So people like Macmillan were out uh, exploring, really. Macmillan, more officially than most, he went out on expeditions. But uh, certainly a lot of the people who can claim to be explorers were really simply graziers or, or pastoralists looking for a new grass to put their, their cattle on. And this grass to put their cattle on, obviously the landscape is also something that's completely alien to where they come from. Yes, that's right. I mean, uh, I'm not sure if you've ever been to Australia. I haven't, no, not yet. Uh, this, the, the vegetation is 
there's something similar about it in as much as you know they they have trees there's grass and all of this kind of thing but it's so different to what you've grown up with and uh, almost unrecognizable mm-hmm. and the indeed the first uh, couple of generations were close to starvation in Australia for for decades because they didn't understand how to farm soil like that they didn't understand the plants you know some of the plants were poisonous some of the, a lot of the animals are venomous um, and so it was, it was a very tricky place to sort of learn how to to cope with this new environment and I think it was a very sort of alienating uh, experience for a lot of them and they had to start completely from scratch even if they'd been very capable outdoorsmen from where they'd come from And at this time before he starts exploring, before the later massacres, what was the the interaction like between the the settlers and the indigenous population? Well it's very mixed Um, when settlers first arrived they had uh, a sort of gentle back and forth, you know, at, at first they chanted the Eora people uh, native to the Sydney Harbour sort of area mm-hmm. came down and, and chanted at them wara 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 which is go away um, but were sort of brought round by the first settlers and, and sort of given hats and there's a, some great descriptions in, in the diaries of people in the first mm-hmm. fleet but um, very quickly these sort of interested uh, relationships of people sort of doing a back and forth trying to understand each other would break down very quickly when they realised that now they were in competition over resources and the incomers had no idea what the the social structure was in Australia, they had no respect for it and so they come charging in, set up their tents and soon enough their farms and their buildings, just anywhere they came to, which which threw everything out of uh, sync because the Aboriginal groups have got this very complex system of land ownership, although land ownership uh, is perhaps the wrong term but effectively a sort of circulation they would move not entirely nomadically and through patterns of, of places and when they found that the white people were now taking up their best spots, um, you know, places down at, at water holes and so on. This often erupted into aggression very quickly into almost an, an open warfare in many regions. Now, Macmillan goes off exploring and he crosses the mountains, the Australian Alps, and finds some more fertile land. And we'll come back to that when we talk about your own trip in a moment. But um, I guess I want to get us to the point where, you know, what were the sort of the things that kicked off these wave of massacres? And there starts to be a, again, a sort of fractious relationship between the the Aboriginal population and, and the settlers. You tell one particular crazy story in the book about the particular hunt for a, a um, an abducted white woman that takes place. Tell us about that. That's right. Um, this was some years into the settling of Gippsland and uh, there had already been uh, major outbreaks of violence in Gippsland between the white settlers, led in some cases by Macmillan himself and the Ganai people. At some stage, you know, there was a, a huge amount of um, suspicion and doubt and, and fear around the Ganai people that was spreading among the settlers. And at one stage there was this rumour that uh, a white woman had been abducted and uh, was being taken around, hidden from the, the white search parties that were then sent out for her. It was all based on rather spurious evidence and a rumour, really, that was spread by Macmillan himself by writing to the newspapers. But it really it caught on after a number of years um, and became 
almost like a mass hysteria. You know, there were the women in, in Melbourne throwing galas to raise money for this, this poor woman, and men, you know, taking it upon themselves to go charging out into the bush and, you know, charging into encampments, and in some cases, you know, really causing a lot of damage. At least 50 Ganai people are thought to have been killed during the chase for this white woman who may or may not ever have existed. And it all came to a bit of a head at some point when... Um, they brought out, well, after after months of chasing, they brought out what they thought was the white woman with great fanfare, and it turned out that she was the figurehead of a ship that had been shipwrecked on the coast. And uh, she that may have been the woman that all this loss of life uh, was caused for. and Or she may not have been. This may have been a way to appease the search parties and try and make it be called off because she never existed ever. So it, it was a horrible... Incident. It's quite interesting, I suppose, um, if you think about it sort of academically, how similar it is to the hysterias that happened quite often in colonial America hmm. around about the same time or shortly before. There it was based a little bit more on truth because there were some true cases when um, women were abducted by Native American groups and held for years at a time. Um, and that was a sort of tactic that was used. But it sort of became this cultural trope, you know, and so if you see quite often pictures of naked women being strapped to um, totem poles and, and sort of uh, figures ululating around her and, mm-hmm. and the fire and that kind of thing, I think it's in Peter Pan. That, that, that's exactly the same sort of image as was popping up in Gippsland. And it says something, I think, about the something about settler culture, you know, what their greatest fears are. And it, it always seems to uh, centre around this the idea of a white woman being somehow disfigured or used by a black man. Mm-hmm. And this really got to them. You know, they, they obsessed over this. It's incredible, the, the things that turned up in the newspapers. They would really fantasise what was happening to this woman in, in, in huge amounts of detail, just to whip themselves up into a frenzy to go and save her. Yeah, it's, it's a remarkable event, and it's just so strange that it, it pops up in these different cultures. There's obviously a, a snowballing of events and violence that leads to these massacres that Angus McMillan was involved in, but they are ultimately kicked off by a murder. That's right. Quite often what would happen is that um, some small crime would take place, for example, uh, a killing of a sheep or, or some cows, and then um, there would be a revenge attack from the other side, and then it would go tit for tat, back and forth. One of the worst episodes in Gippsland history, indeed uh, from Australian frontier history, is one of the, the bloodiest episodes, was kicked off by the murder of Ranald McAllister, who was a prominent uh, white settler in the region, um, the nephew of a, a, a big landowner in Australia called Lachlan McAllister, and this was uh, Macmillan's boss. Um, so this young man was killed, again, in, in some kind of revenge attack for some unknown problem. And this whipped up the incredible racial tension in the area, um, and the, the men came together upon horses with their rifles and, and then charged off looking for any Aboriginal people to kill in, in response and came upon an encampment of men and women and children and attacked it quite without warning. And there's nothing to suggest that this encampment was in any way to do with uh, the attack that had killed Ronald, but I think they were just seeing red. And this was the way that it seemed to be working on the on the frontier, these, these tit-for-tat attacks. And so um, over the course of that day, it's thought that anywhere between 80 and 200 Ganai people from the Brabubulun clan in the far south along the coast were, were knocked out, first at this encampment, and then there's a report that a young boy was fished out of the waterhole, uh, the last surviving 
person of his clan and marched at gunpoint to a neighbouring encampment where the same took place. So it's incredible, bloody, horrible scenes. And Macmillan is, has been implicated as, as being the ringleader of this. This is Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, and today I'm talking to Carol Flynn. We're talking about her book, Thicker Than Water. And Carol, I want to talk about how you how you would go about researching these two parallel, not even stories, but views of, of Angus Macmillan, particularly as one of them is sort of hidden and you know obviously we'll talk later on in the interview about what's being done about this now and and any sort of reconciliation that might have happened but clearly people are still not talking about this sort of thing well i think in australia this uh darker side of the colonial story has um it's certainly out there but it's it's by no means often discussed it is is very much the preserve of a certain strand of of the left wing and um perhaps a mainstream australian hesitates i think to discuss these stories often so i found that a lot of the texts the most important texts for me to use were published by very small presses in in one case self-published by the historian who'd done the research in fact had kind of done the the, the breaking the back of the research of um revealing the Gippsland massacres a man called Peter Gardner who had sort of gone fossicking through the archives digging out all sorts of different accounts some of which conflict slightly but all of which sort of paint a picture of this community being in essentially a state of warfare and he does character sketches of of Macmillan and and other people like that so it is there the problem with researching the massacres not only in Gippsland but across Australia was the fact that it was always illegal to kill Aboriginal people which is not the same as it was in in many other parts of the colonies for example in America it was often state sanctioned you know the idea that you would go and scalp and and that kind of thing Um, so here in Australia it was always illegal and there had been a test case um, actually I think the only case where white settlers were tried and in fact executed for killing Aboriginal people which happened in New South Wales in 1838 a Mile Creek case um, and so these people who were doing the massacres would write sort of sideways glances to it in their own diaries and letters to each other, talking about chastising the locals or dispersing them with guns, you know, this kind of thing. But they would never actually say that they had shot them. And they were very careful not to write down anything that could see them tried in court because they were very aware that it was a real possibility. So actually researching this time and, and that sort of dark side of of the colonial experience is very difficult and you have to build it up piece by piece you know mosaic and infer between the lines you know when they say i shot into a group of aborigines what actually happened you know 
certainly hundreds of them were being killed because the population estimates, again, another sort of piece of the evidence. At, uh, in 1843, when uh, one of the main government officials first arrived in Gippsland, he thought there was around 1,800 Ghanai people, and that was probably very much a conservative estimate. And then by 1853, so 10 years later, um, that had dropped to only 126 uh, and he doesn't say why, but they do talk about there being violence. They do talk about there being, you know, terrible skirmishes with the natives and so on. But they never say who and they never say exactly who were killed or how many people were killed. So that's very difficult to, to try and get a real picture. And I think that's what I was trying to do in the book, was trying to get to the bottom as far as is possible of what happened and try and, and put myself in the mind of Macmillan. You know, how could someone who had been so pious, been such a sort of idealistic young man, the man I'd gotten to know through his diaries on on the journey out to Australia, how he, in such a short period of time, you know, less than five years, was suddenly, you know, shooting mercilessly into crowds of, of women and children. It's It's impossible to do, and yet it must have happened. And so you go to Australia to follow in his footsteps and try to gain some understanding. And among other things, one of the things you do is you go out and follow you got a sort of camping expedition with a, a woman who's written a play about him mm-hmm. in the past to trace that journey he took tell us about that trip I met up with a woman called Jeannie Horton who was a playwright who'd written actually quite a damning play about Macmillan and so I was very interested to kind of see her side of the story as a local person who had been very drawn into and involved in the story of Macmillan and uh, to begin with we set off just doing sites that were significant to Macmillan usually in his later life so places where he had reached uh, as an explorer and then built his homestead on Bushy Park the harbour which he discovered which finally made viable this great area of uh, agricultural land and then to um, a track that he cut shortly before his death and and also the site where he died and it was very interesting kind of to get into his head partly just to become involved in the landscape you know to be out walking in the landscape to try and see it through his eyes and to picture you know what it must have been like to to be coming through here on horseback and so on so that was my first uh, plan and then secondly to go into all the small archives that I came across or or small museums and um, sort of talk about it with people and I did find um, the recognition of the massacres well everyone had heard of him but not very many people necessarily knew very much about the massacres that had taken place and that found that very shocking because it seemed to me that that kind of was the important history in the area you know there had been aboriginal people for at least 20,000 years and then in the last 150 years, suddenly they were gone and there, mm-hmm. were, there were white people. I mean, it, to an outsider, it all seems perfectly obvious. But I suppose, you know, if you are living inside a culture, you don't necessarily think about these things. And if you haven't been told about it in school, which I'm told today they don't teach uh, about local history, especially not about the massacres in, in uh, Gippsland schools. I can see how perhaps it doesn't become common knowledge. And so some people would be aware of his legacy as an explorer because there are statues around, you know, there's a campus of a college named after him, you know, all all these kind of things. But um, that depth of knowledge wasn't always there. So, I mean, obviously this was taking place for all of the different groups of Aboriginals across Australia, but, you know, concentrating particularly on the Ghanai, the people that were involved in, in these massacres. Obviously they were, you know, much reduced in numbers. But then what happens in the intervening years to now? There's all of these terrible attempts at forced assimilation. and Yes, that's right. And I suppose I should uh, sort of pick up on what you said at the beginning there about um, this happening to different groups across Australia. And absolutely, this is uh, almost a, a case study 
study mm-hmm. of how it unfolded for the decades previous to this and also the decades uh, afterwards. But in many ways, the, the Ghanai is a very clear-cut episode because they weren't wiped out by the same diseases that attacked most of the Aboriginal community. And so it's much easier for us to point at and say massacres not kill these people because they were a very, um, how do you put that, sort of aggressive antisocial tribe. And so they, they didn't get smallpox and that kind of thing. And so, um, yes, as I say, it's, it, it's a bit more clear-cut. You can say the deaths here were not because of disease, which is quite often what the, say, right-wing historians will throw into the mix and say, you know, that killed people, not massacres. You know, whereas here it is much more obviously uh, a case of massacres. But yes, as you said, after the massacres is almost a, a more distressing tale somehow of the forced assimilation policies that came into play. By the time the Ghanai people had been very much diminished in the 1850s, they brought in a whole series of new policies that would try and break down Aboriginal society and to assimilate it into the white population to sort of breed out the colour. Um, and I, again, this is a, a universal thing that happens not only across Aboriginal Australia, but also in America, in Canada. You know, in other countries, you see the same pattern. And the idea is to break down traditional uh, ways of living, language, and to re-educate people in, uh, or, or civilise them, as they said. So they would keep Ghanai people in small Christian missions, told them that they had to stay there, and then uh, tell them that they are no longer allowed to speak in their native tongue. They had to give them all of their uh, boomerangs and spears and so on, were handed in and burned mm-hmm. in front of them. So this happened at the Lake Tars station and also a station called Ramayak. And uh, at Ramayak, they died out effectively, very quickly. The death rates were incredibly fast and then it was combined with Lake Tars, which still exists today as an Aboriginal encampment. And what's so um, difficult about these assimilation policies, which over the following decades would also include things like the Stolen Generations, if you've come across that, which went on right up until the 60s and 70s in some area, when the children were taken from their parents and, and settled in white foster families or in orphanages. So what really happened was it, it breaks apart even that sense of culture and, and who people are. And that is extremely, although it's intangible, extremely harmful. You find um, with communities whose culture have been harmed in this way, um, terrible social problems. So dysfunctions, um, people are more likely to be drunk or addicted to drugs or there are problems with domestic violence. And you see this in Aboriginal communities across the world Mm -hmm. where they have been forced to assimilate and they've lost that sense of who they are and that pride in who they are and that is an extremely harmful situation for any community to be in and you can still see the effects of that today very much so and that's something that the Aboriginal community I spoke to uh, were very aware of and, and today they're trying to put a lot of effort into for example reviving their language which has completely died out as a spoken language and uh, you know Aboriginal art and so on is now being very much pushed to the forefront because although as I say it's intangible it does have very clear effects on, on health outcomes and sort of life satisfaction outcomes. You talk about something that I mean I say but it sounds almost typically Australia that it's flippancy national <laughs> sorry day what is this and how useful is that well yes no absolutely that was my reaction as well when I read about it, it was like oh right okay I mean it doesn't seem to be getting to the core of it really you know it's much it's much darker than that but I don't know perhaps it's like a, a culturally uh, specific response but uh, in Australia there are these modern days uh, attempts to reconcile between the two communities uh, one of them is Sorry Day, and it's to uh, 
mark the anniversary of an apology that was made in Parliament, apologising for the stolen generations, which is still very much within living memory. Mm-hmm. And uh, although, I don't know, it's, it's very hard to say what the effect of a national apology is, but many Aboriginal people I spoke to said that that moment of apology was incredibly important, and some people reported the idea of sort of weight being lifted off them, that kind of thing. And I think it's very easy for us from outside to underestimate the importance of simply having these dark truths recognised as a truth. Um, for so often, Aboriginal communities have been talking about what happened to them and having doubted or denied. You know, denialism of the massacres is very much still mainstream in Australia, or perhaps not mainstream, but it's, it's still got a very large voice. So people saying, well, maybe there were a few massacres, but, you know, that it didn't really happen like that. You know, they talk about people who write books like mine as being black armband wearers, Mm -hmm. you know, that they're somehow doing down the country. And so the idea that this had broken through, that the country was apologising to the Aboriginal people became very significant. And it's now um, marked every year and with all different ways, you know, there might be concerts in the street or sky writing, this kind of thing. It has become an event in Australia. And uh, things like this and other sort of gestures of apology, for example, um, at the beginning of uh, local council meetings or, or other sort of public meetings, they often have uh, a welcome to country, it's called. They ask a local Aboriginal elder to speak for a few minutes and then to welcome the people in the audience to their country. So it's very much uh, handing over the responsibility of allowing people on their lands to the original owners. Again, it's a gesture, and, and to my eyes as an outsider, I found it a sort of a futile gesture. Yeah. I didn't really understand what the point was. But speaking back and forth... I was sort of convinced that actually it it did mean something. You know, that idea that they were being recognised as traditional owners for the first time, really, for many people, is actually very important. Let's talk about you in relation to this, I guess. So one of the themes of this book is an idea of a sort of, you know, inherited guilt. Um, How did you feel, Carol? Let's talk about (laughs) that. You find out that this person was your ancestor. You find out what they've done. Obviously, yeah, how did you feel? But what can you do with that knowledge? Well, yeah, I suppose that's the the big question I was kind of worrying about all the way through. You know, like, did it... You know, a couple of people have responded to this. um, In fact, not even a couple. You know, a lot of people respond to the concept of my book quite negatively because they will say, well, you know, of course you are not responsible for the deeds of your your ancestors. You know, where do you stop it? Are the Vikings? You know, do you keep going back and you're always sorry? But at the same time, there is something which I feel to be self-evident, uncomfortable about being in a group which benefits at the obvious expense of another group. So for me, it was... I suppose I had a familiar link, and for people who live in Australia, it is uh, a a very much present-day living at the expense of, if you see what I mean. So what I wanted to look into was, you know, today's generation. What should today's generation do, if anything, to try and right the wrongs of the past? And it's not an easy question, and it doesn't have a simple answer, but I think uh, just the act of having that discussion is very important. And for me, I think the familial link was an emotional motivation to try and find out about a historical um, misdeed and to think about it and think about the present-day politics in a way that I wouldn't have done if I didn't learn about this. You know, I I knew nothing about Australia before, and then after finding about about Macmillan and, and my link, I became fascinated by it. And it, I don't know why, but it did have an emotional significance to me. And uh, I think if my family had continued today 
to benefit financially from that, I would find that even more difficult and and hard to deal with. You know, there are very much um, families from old pioneer days who remain in place in Australia, often the richest families in mm-hmm. Australia, were given huge tracts of land from the government at the time, back in sort of the end of the 18th century, early 19th century, and have never moved off. You know, they are essentially the landed gentry of Australia, and that is was directly taken from the Aboriginal people and handed to them. And so I think in that situation, you are in very obviously benefiting to to the detriment of others. And the question of what to do, what concrete things, not gestures, can be done is the the next step. And I think that's something that modern day Australia is grappling with and something that I was trying to grapple with. And uh, there have been steps made, some actually very interesting steps made uh, in Australia. For example, new legislation, well, reasonably new legislation um, in the last couple of decades called Native Title Uh, legislation in which Aboriginal groups which have been settled or at least have kept uh, a constant link with their original homeland can lay a claim for it. So for example the Ghanai people in 2010 were awarded the sort of nominal ownership or the traditional ownership it's called of 20,000 square kilometres of Gippsland. That is by showing that um, a large number of remaining Ghanai people who are descended from the Ghanai people who were victimised by Macmillan have stayed on the land and uh, continued to fight for their ownership of this land. And in 2010, they were given ownership and, and the body was set up called the Land and Waters Aboriginal Corporation, through which they can discuss um, use of resources, they received a certain amount of money as a sort of settlement from the government. And so, so these are very concrete ways of trying to reconcile between two communities. The white one, which often either doesn't know about the story in their area, or doesn't care or has decided you know that they should get over it already you know that kind of thing which is very much a a vein of thought and the black community which is looking still looking for you know some kind of of at least a a payment or some recognition of of what they have lost and how it was illegally taken from them and so that you know the native title legislation is is very important there and it's the most concrete way i think of trying to reconcile today obviously the the people whose opinion matters the most here are the uh, are the, the Ghanai people. And as you already mentioned, you met and spoke with a number of people, historians and leaders and things. So what, what did they say? What did they think of your project? Well, um, it took a while to have a response, particularly from, the I suppose, the leaders, I suppose the community leaders uh, who run the Land and Waters Aboriginal Corporation. And I sort of kept writing letters and you know you don't want to force people to speak to you especially about things that are, are very difficult and painful for their community and, and continue to be very painful and so to begin with I met a young Ghanai artist called Stephen Payton who uh, was a relative of a very prominent elder um, Uncle Albert Mellet and um, with Stephen I went travelling for some time uh, looking more into the exploration Roots that Macmillan had, and we camped and sort of discussed a lot of these things together. And that was uh, very much sort of one-on-one friends. We were roughly the same age. We kind of had a lot of similar interests, and we worked in an art project together, um, which has been on show in Melbourne. And and through Stephen, uh, he introduced me to his grandfather, Uncle Albert Mullet, the the elder who I met at his house actually shortly before he died. And that was a whole new sort of level of understanding I think to meet someone who had lived through some extremely segregated times and although Stephen is the inheritor of his grandfather's legacy 
his his grandfather had lived through a time when they had to you know sit in separate places on on buses or you know they were told to sit in particular seats in cinemas or sworn at and all sorts of things like this and he'd been a bean picker and done lots of um, hard labor while campaigning all the time in his spare time to have the land returned to his people and was a very prominent uh, activist and and community leader so that was um, a, a big moment for me I think to to meet Uncle Albert and um, then after another sort of year of, of writing I made contact with the uh, the corporation which runs the runs the Ghana Island today and went in for some meetings and again that was also a, a big eye-opener. Um, Barry Kenny who was then the CEO talked to me about what they were doing with the money that they'd been given from the government but also talked to me about his own family story which was extremely shocking and he was descended from a young boy who had escaped a massacre by hiding in a log and then had been adopted by a woman on one of the Christian missions. So it was, you know, these are very difficult conversations to have effectively with strangers who I'd never met before from a completely different country. And I was very taken aback by how gracious they were about simply me trying to speak to them and and write about this topic because I was almost expecting them to turn me away. I wasn't sure how the response would be. And I know that there is hesitancy towards speaking to outsiders, white journalists or writers and so on, because there's this idea that this is their story and they should tell it. And so I'm very grateful that they were willing to speak to me the way that they did. And I hope that my book sort of publicises perhaps what happened so that more Ghanai voices are, are, are listened to and, and, and able to, to tell their own story. And just one more question then to finish off. Having now written the book, research Angus Macmillan's life and his acts... How do you feel about him now? I mean, you mentioned, you know, he was obviously... He came to Australia out of the brutalisation of the Highland Clearances. And then either you could say, well, he was brutalised, or, well, he should have known better. You know, either way, you know, how do you feel about what he did and ultimately being being his ancestor? Well, it is very confusing, you know, to try and uh, try and make these two things add together. But the, I suppose, the thing I kept remembering was Macmillan isn't alone. He, he wasn't the only person who did this. And to me, he became sort of symbolic of what had really happened to white society in Australia. You know, he had gone out there, a God-fearing man, a hard worker, and somehow become a, a cold-blooded killer, and then turned back again the second that um, warfare stopped. He became, again, like very generous and, in fact, became a protector of Aborigines, in a, an official term, um, when he distributed blankets and food and so on to the then much-reduced Ghanai people. So it, his human qualities are very much the fore, and I was fascinated by his personality, really, and, and that formed the core of the book. I don't know how I feel about him. I, I, I know him very well. Now, I feel like I've been inside his head for such a long time and it's not my place to forgive him. I can only understand what happened and, and learn about it and hope that if I was in the same situation, I would make better choices. But I think until we are, none of us really know how we'll react. I've been talking to Cal Flynn about her book Thicker Than Water, History, Secrets and Guilt, a memoir. It's out now from William Collins Books. Cal, thank you so much for coming in and telling me about it. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. 
If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, or even a lot, you can do so at littleadams.com. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.